Please turn with me this morning to 2 Samuel chapter 9. Again, we're going to take a small little detour out of our study through Isaiah. We'll be back there next week with Isaiah chapter 29. But I thought this was a good opportunity to talk about 2 Samuel 9. It contains my favorite passage or my favorite verse in Scripture, and it's out there on in our hallway. I had some guests here this weekend, and they actually asked me why that verse. And so I got to preach a sermonette before I left here last night. That was always fun. And so hopefully it'll give some life to this text that seems a little strange. Like, why are we here learning about this man named Mephibosheth? Well, it's about Jesus, of course. And so before we go to the text, let's go to him and ask for his help with the text. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, as we come to your word... We come here to a small little story in the middle of this historical book about a great king who wasn't all that great, really. You are the one that is great. And so, Lord, as we come to this passage, help us to see, too, that we are not all that great either. This text has nothing to do with us. It has only to do with how good you are to us. And so we pray that we would see you in it, that we would be convicted of our sin, and that we would be led to the truth. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So, as we walk through this, one of the overwhelming themes of this passage is the idea of shame. And shame is one of the most overwhelming emotions that a person can go through. It's, it can cause a people, a person to never want to associate with anyone else, with any other people, or never, some, for some people they never even want to walk outside of their homes because of this kind of shame. It's the idea that you've done something wrong, or that you feel like you've done something wrong, even when you haven't done anything wrong. And it's different from guilt in that way because guilt is associated with an actual wrongdoing, something that you've actually committed. Sin or shame is not that way. There's no real wrongdoing necessarily. There may be. But you still think that you've done something wrong or bad. People that have been victims of a crime in particular, they will often describe feeling violated. And the violation is that they feel like they're being punished, but they've done nothing wrong. It is against how we're made to feel this kind of shame. Children who've had parents abandon them can feel this way because they think it's somehow their fault. They have this shameful kind of feeling that their parent has left them and it has nothing to do with them. This is what shame is, and it's hard to convince people that, hey, you've done nothing wrong, it's not your fault. It's hard to, to convince people of that. Shame is a very difficult thing. I've counseled many people over the years who have been dealing with this emotion, and it's, it's one of the most powerful things, I think, that, that we can experience as, as humans because it is the opposite of how we were created. And you know why there is shame? Well, it has to do with sin. In a few moments in human history, we went from, and the man and his wife were both naked and unashamed, to 
and their eyes were open, and they knew they were naked, and they felt shame. In just a few moments. Since then, there have, whether it because of wrongs again that we've committed or wrongs that have been committed to us, we've experienced those dehumanizing effects of shame. And it doesn't even have to be any kind of real wrong. Anytime that we think that we are or we're not what we should be, anytime we think that we should be this other thing, but yet we're falling short of some sort of standard, that is shame. Thankfully, shame is not for the believer. Our Lord Jesus Christ is one who dispels the shame that is in our lives. And he reminds us of our place at his, in his kingdom and even at his table. And we're reminded of that very clearly in this passage. And so as we look at this passage, I want us to see three points. The shame of our past and how Christ redeems our past. The shame of our present and how he brings honor to our present and the shame of our future and how he glorifies our future. And so with that, let's look together. Second Samuel chapter 9. Please stand with me in the honor of the reading of God's holy word. Second Samuel chapter 9. And David said, Is there anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and he, they called him to David. And the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in both his feet. The king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, He is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. Then David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, son of Amiel at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he said, Behold, I am your servant. David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. And I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Then he called, then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belonged to Saul and all his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, according to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so shall your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah, and all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. Amen. This is God's word. You may be seated. So just for a brief introduction 
a brief context. Remember Saul and Jonathan. Saul was the first king of the nation of Israel. He was appointed so by the prophet Samuel and the people were all about him, but he was not all about the Lord's commandments at all. He disobeyed the Lord and he showed himself to be unfit as the king of Jerusalem. However, he did not step out lightly. And for the rest of the book of 1 Samuel, we read about his pursuit of David and trying to kill David. And then finally, he and his son, Jonathan, were both killed in battle. David is now the king of Israel. And he had been appointed so by Samuel also to be the king of Israel. And there was a bit of struggle there, a bit of a power struggle. But after that came to close and David is kind of, his kingdom is kind of coming to a rest. He is here trying to then honor the promise to a friend that he had made long ago that he would always care for the house of Jonathan. And so David and Jonathan in 1 Samuel had this really great relationship. Jonathan loved David as much as he loved his own soul, is what we are told in the scriptures. And Jonathan really is responsible for making sure that David was able to escape from his own father. And so while all of this was going on, and just before they were to part ways for the final time, they have this interaction. And so turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 20, and we'll read there the promise that David makes to Jonathan. 1 Samuel chapter 20, starting at verse 14. So Jonathan knows that this is not going to go well. He knows that David is the true king of Israel, even though Jonathan is next in line. Yet Jonathan is is faithful to his own father, even to death. And so this is what he says to David, verse 14. If I'm still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever. When the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. And Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David saying, may the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, for he loved him as much as he loved his own soul. And so here we have this promise. David, please remember my household. He was thinking of his son at the time. David, when all of your enemies are wiped off the face of the earth, please remember my house. And so here's David at the end of this whole thing, and he's in his throne room, and he asks his servants, verse 3 of 2 Samuel 9, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I might show him the kindness of God? And Ziba said to the king, There is still the son of Jonathan. He is crippled. In both of his feet. Now how did that happen? Jonathan was killed in battle. Of course. And David's people took over. And as would normally happen. All of the enemies of David would be wiped out. Including the family of Saul. And so Mephibosheth. Who was a young child. Very young at the time. Was at home. And this was all uh, going down. And his nurse. You can find this in other 
parts of the scriptures, his nurse was running with him out of the house and dropped him. And it crippled both of his feet to the point that he was lame. He was unable to walk. Saul had another son whose name was Ishbosheth, which uh, consequently means the man of shame. Ishbosheth was murdered David against David's approval. And so Mephibosheth, whose name means the dispeller of shame, knew that he had to be next. The dispeller of shame was the son of a great warrior. Jonathan, who was this incredible warrior, yet the dispeller of shame was dropped by his nurse as they fled the battle. And now he's unable to walk, and he's, rather than actually being the dispeller of shame, he has shame upon shame heaped upon him. Yet David remembers the son of Jonathan. There's still this son of Jonathan. He's, he's crippled in both of his feet. And they make sure that we understand that who is this son? Verse 6, and Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, son of Saul. The text makes sure that we don't forget that these are the people who were, they were supposed to be David's enemies. The son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face. Now you know what uh, Mephibosheth is probably thinking as he's brought before the king on this day. He's probably expecting to be killed as the last of Saul's lineage, the last one who could possibly cause any sort of rebellion as far as Saul's line was concerned. Yet, what happened to him? David said to him, Do not fear For I will show you the kindness, or I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. And I will restore to you all the land of Saul your father, and you shall eat at my table always. It's pretty incredible. David restored this enemy. If you think about it, I mean, we have very similar things going on in our own lives. How can we relate with Mephibosheth? when it comes to our own past and what is it about our past that causes us to feel shame today. Maybe you feel like you failed at some point in your life, at something. And you can point to one or two instances and you've let those things sum up your entire life. It's really easy to do in pastoral ministry, for sure. I can definitely... Remember a few things that I've said to people that have just hung with me for years that are long gone, but have just stuck around. I've counseled families that have went ahead and broken up in divorce anyway. I've counseled children that went ahead and rebelled anyway. And it got me thinking, I must be really bad at this. There are times when I've let that kind of failure dictate my path forward in ministry, the way that I look at all people, really. And that's not just a ministry thing. Anyone doing anything can relate to this. You can relate to this in any calling of life, whether at the home, 
in your occupation, whatever it is. We let these kinds of failures define who we are. They stack up against us. So much so that we can't even lift our heads, especially around other Christians. Because, you know, when we're around other Christians, we have to be perfect, right? We have to be with no problems and everyone has to be okay. Maybe you think you failed as a parent because your children have sinned in some sort of way. And it's affected your reputation and it's piled this shame upon you. Maybe that's what it is. You think you failed as a spouse. You look at other other couples and you think, well, I'm a, a bad husband or bad wife because I'm not as good as them. Why can't we have that? Maybe you're experiencing shame for something that was done to you in your past. That you were a victim of. Something that you had no control over. But now you're letting it define who you are because obviously if anyone knew this, they wouldn't want anything to do with me. We have to remember, when it comes to the table of the king, it's particularly the king Jesus Not a one of us is deserving to eat at that table. None of us. Any gift that we get from above is by his grace alone. Our sin and our lawlessness deserve hell. They deserve every ounce of shame that we feel. And they deserve punishment from a holy God. Yet, that is not what occurs. We have an invite from the King of Kings, our Lord Jesus, who does not hold against us the shame of our past. In fact, he has died to redeem that, to take upon himself the shame of our past and remove it. As far as the east is from the west, is what the psalmist says in Psalm 103. And his criteria isn't for us to come to him clean or, you know, in Mephibosheth's case, to be able to actually walk in front of the king. He just requires us to come. All that the Father gives to me, what Jesus says, will come to me and I will never drive them out. David, in Psalm 3, he calls and he was dealing with a an issue with his own son who rebelled against him and attempted to overthrow his own kingdom, his son Absalom, which is this whole other story. But in Psalm 3, as he's dealing with this kind of shame, this small little band, and his own son was able to overthrow him, he calls the Lord a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. He, Jesus, is our glory. In him there is no shame. He is the lifter of our head, brothers and sisters in Christ. He is also the the one who dispels the shame of our present. Consider the weight of the shame that Mephibosheth must have been feeling at the time. The text doesn't give us a whole lot here, but you had to know the pressure that Mephibosheth was feeling, right? Saul, what does the scripture say of him? That he was head and shoulders above all the Hebrew men. He was a warrior. He was a king. He was Israel's first king. Even though he was not all that great at it, he was still this figure of high stature. When he wanted something, he usually went and took it. Jonathan, valiant in battle, 
Even when others were afraid, he literally climbed the side of mountains to fight against his enemies that outnumbered him. He was not afraid of anything. Now Mephibosheth, lame from the time he was a boy, not from a battle wound or something. He didn't take a wound in battle and now have some cool story to tell, yet he was dropped by his nanny. After David's generous offer, I think Mephibosheth's response is very telling of his view of himself, and perhaps some of you can relate with this this morning. Verse 8, he said, and he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Dogs were unclean animals in the Hebrew culture. Scavengers in the town compared with the most detestable things in the Hebrew culture. And a dead dog was much worse. We don't quite grasp this in our American culture where we put sweaters on our dogs and walk them down the street. This was a high insult to himself. This was a crazy insult. So not only the humiliation of being a son of the opposition, but also being lame. He was suffering immense shame. You know the kind of warrior David was. And here's this guy who can barely walk, who's crawling in on his hands and knees. This immense kind of shame. What is your servant that you should regard a dead dog such as I. And notice David's non-response here. He doesn't even give Mephibosheth's statement the time of day. Rather, he calls his own servant, who happens to be Saul's servant, and says, all that belonged to Saul and to all his house, I have given to his crippled grandson. And you, my servant and Saul's servant and all of your servants, all of you, you're going to work his land for him. And you're going to bring in his produce and he's going to be able to eat all of that. Actually, it's just going to be his house that's going to be eating all that because he himself, he is going to have a seat at my own table. That was David's response. A dead dog. How about an heir to the king? What about us? Can you relate with Mephibosheth on this level? You may not be lame physically, but where chances are you're probably ashamed of something about yourself. An illness, maybe an infirmity, but it could just be the way that you see yourself or your own fitness. When I was... Still in youth ministry, I experienced quite a bit of shame. Um, I remember as a youth pastor going to the youth guy group things and these guys from big churches who were doing big things would say, so Mike, tell us about the cool things that's going on in your youth group. And if you know me, that kind of question just kind of just makes me recoil anyway. But I would always be hesitant and I would never answer the truth which would have been I just finished teaching in the book of Ruth or something like that yet I would say oh yeah there's all kinds of crazy stuff going on people are beating down the doors to get in it was never true I didn't want to tell them the truth 
I didn't want to because I didn't want them to see me for who I really was. It was a sham. For any of you, maybe, even your own occupation, your own calling in life, whatever that is. There's all sort of hidden expectations, some of them even not so hidden. And how do you react when those things are questioned? The twinge of, I need to make something up here. That twinge is called shame. Of course you've had that. We all have. As much as we'd like to be completely transparent, we always have some semblance of a mask on in order to hide our shame of not meeting these perceived expectations because we're so concerned about what that person thinks of us. The fact is that our need for the approval of men and women is nothing more than bold-faced idolatry. The fear of man causes us to wear masks to cover up our shame. However, man's thoughts of me do not determine my status before a holy God at all. Jesus Christ determines my status before a holy God. And he says that I'm shame free. He says the same of you, brother or sister in Christ, and that you need not live your life under any sort of pretense whatsoever. Ephesians 2.10 says that we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good things that have been prepared beforehand for us to walk in. The work we do, no matter what it is, whatever kind of work we do, He is called good and He has made effective because He is good. There is no shame There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So we can take our masks off. We are children of the King. And next, the shame of our future. He redeems our future. Surely Mephibosheth must have been feeling this kind of pinch. He was no longer in a royal line. He was lame. No hope of anything at all of providing for himself. And again, he's thinking, I'm probably going to be killed, but yet he's given all of the possessions of Saul, which more than likely were extremely substantial. And he's told that these people are going to care for you. And his son is even mentioned here, Mephibosheth's son. And so not only is he going to be cared for, but his entire lineage forever is going to be cared for. David provides this this passage makes sure that we understand that Mephibosheth is going to eat at David's table in 13 verses. It's mentioned four times as if we haven't quite understood. And it even goes so far as to say, like one of the king's sons. That's why I love verse 13 so much. I think it captures it perfectly. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he always ate at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. And so why does the writer then, we have this great ending, Mephibosheth eats at the king's table all the time, and period, chapter 14, or chapter 10, sorry, is what should happen, right? Yet we are reminded again that he was crippled in both feet, and that's the end of the story. 
Why is that? Have we not poured enough salt in this poor man's wounds? Can we not give him a break? Why would he write this? I'm sure he wants to remind us of the benevolence of a good godly king who loved this man even when he didn't have to. So what about for us? How does this point to us? We may be able to provide for ourselves materially. And you've probably at some point, hopefully, have come to the realization that those material possessions do not provide any sort of satisfaction. Piling up all the wealth in the world does not give you anything but wealth. It has no lasting value. They're just worldly possessions. They do not last. They do not count for anything that lasts. And especially for young people, I think this is important for you to hear as well, because you're often asked, what are you going to be when you grow up? And the main thrust behind that question is, how are you going to eat? How are you going to take care of yourself? What are you going to do so that I won't have to feed you for the rest of your life? And it's your parents and your grandparents asking you those kinds of things. And, you know, you you feel this kind of twinge of, well, I need to tell them what they want to hear. And so you make something up. There's some shame associated with that. You need to hear that. And you need not feel it. Because all of the wealth and all the possession that ever was and ever is, there is one owner of all of it. And it is King Jesus He knows the future and has approved of it already. And he invites you always to eat at his table. Always and forever. Not as an outcast. Not, um, if you'll just sit at the end over there. But as one of his own sons and daughters. Not only that, he is ensured... That you will do so, that you will have blessing in this life, not necessarily material blessing, but you will have real lasting blessing in this life. And then you have the next life to look forward to when all of the shadows that only are just mere pictures of blessing here will come to full reality. And we will have eternal blessing forever. And we will live in a glorified state One without shame, if you can even imagine that. And we wear the name of Jesus Christ today as Christians. Where there is no shame, but there is only glory, honor, and power. And if you don't know Christ, know that his death and his resurrection means that you can have this kind of life. Have it to the full, not just in heaven someday, yes, that too, but today also. And so, in conclusion, look with me at verse 13 again. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both feet. When I read this the first time, it immediately made me think of Romans 5 8. But God demonstrates his own love for us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It does not say that when we got our lives in order, Christ died for us. Or when we were without any disgrace, sorrow, imperfection, or shame, Christ died for us. It says that while we were yet sinners, 
while we were yet crippled in both feet. He died for us and invited us to eat at his own table. Ralph Davis, who's a great pastor and Old Testament commentator, says, The first principle for grappling with the marvel of God's love is to realize that he has no business loving the ones that he does. What I'm saying is that we are the Lord's Mephibosheths, and there's absolutely no reason why we should be eating continually at the king's table. It's absolutely true. Even though we all have shame in one degree or another in our own lives, we have one that does not look at those things when he looks at us. But he sees his own righteousness. He sees his own people, his children. He looks at us as his beloved creatures, the ones that he sent his only son to die on the cross for, that we can have forgiveness. And he was raised again that we might have new life and have it to the full. This new life in which our shame has been glorified. Brothers and sisters, let us live as if that is true. Let's go to him in prayer. Our Lord Jesus, as we read this story, we are indeed your Mephibosheths. We were much worse than lame in both feet. We were dead in our own trespasses and sins. We were not seeking after you. We were not good. Yet, you were. Because you are rich in mercy, in grace, and because of that, you have made us alive. And so, Lord, we pray that as we have this new life, as we are called new creations, the old is gone, the new has come. Lord, let us live as if that's the case. Help us to not see the shame and guilt and oppression and sorrow that we feel. Help us to not be defined by these things, yet to be defined by you and you alone. We pray this in your holy name. Amen.